Welcome. This podcast is being brought to you by the Friends of the Bodleian. The Friends have supported the work of the Bodleian Libraries for almost a century, and members enjoy a range of exclusive events and digital content. You can join the Friends today online at visit.bodleian.fox.app.uk slash Friends of the Bodleian, all hyphenated. Renard the Fox is a medieval charmer, an anti-hero, a rascal, a scallywag. Like Odysseus Polytropos, Odysseus of the many wiles, Reynard is a trickster. He also embodies storytelling itself, its exuberance and fertility and danger. As Isaiah Berlin wrote, the fox knows many things. And what he knows here is how to extricate himself from the consequence of his own misdeed, again and again at the very last minute. Rather like Scheherazade in the Thousand and One Nights, Renard has his wits and his silver tongue as his weapons against the abuses and threats of supreme power. His adventures are also interwoven in a chain of stories, several of them from an even older narrative tradition of animal fables, saints' wonder tales, and classical parables. Sir Renard has found in Anne-Louise Avery a most lively match. Her retelling sparkles on every page. It takes as its starting point William Caxton's prose translation of, the, of 1481, which was a hugely popular story cycle then. It was based on a satire of 200 years earlier called Renard the Fox, composed by Wilhelm van Boudelou in Ghent. But Wilhelm was himself drawing on more ancient material about the cunning escapades of the fox and his arch enemy, Isengrim the Wolf. The cast of characters is large and highly coloured and very lively. Bruin the Bear, Isengrim the Wolf, Lady Hermeline, Sir Reynard's wife, and they all contribute to Anne-Louise's vivid portrait of a medieval court, which in turn, perhaps especially now, speaks to political plotting and disgraceful deals anywhere at any time. In the tradition of animal fables, this comic epic offers a parody of medieval chivalry and at the same time, an original series of wonderfully funny episodes, which Anne-Louise relates with ingenuity and terrific high spirits. Anne-Louise, how did you come across this medieval work and what attracted you to this great work, this great task of rendering it in a new contemporary version? Well, I'd, I'd known the tales of Reynard since I was, I was quite little, little girl. As my, my father, who was a uh, um, a journalist and a writer. His name was Ronald, and he used to tell me when I was little that he was very pleased that he shared his name with, with such a fabulous trickster. And uh, so, I, and he was very much like Reynard actually. And, and some of the Reynard in my book is, is a little bit based on him. <laughs> so I, I knew about Reynard from being little, and I, I knew a few of the stories about you know Isengrim getting his tail stuck in the ice and, and the bucket incident where they're going up and down in the well. So that I had this kind of background knowledge, but um, it was when um, I was uh, started um, looking into working with a couple of uh, Anglo-Dutch academics, uh, Professor Ad Hutter from the University of Bristol and George Levelt, and we talked about uh, working on a uh, project for the Bodleian, an exhibition project uh, about Anglo-Dutch um, literary exchange in the medieval period. Um, and uh, it was out of that that we thought it would be nice to, to retell 
the tales of Reynard. And initially, it was going to be a children's book. But when I started looking at Paxton and I began the translation, it was quite obvious that this deserved a great big uh, expansion, a great big investigation uh, in terms of uh, uh, retelling it. it. It was much more than just a, a, a small tale about a fox having a few troubles. It, it encompassed whole world so I, I found that I, I wrote and wrote and wrote and initially I was supposed to write about 75,000 words and it grew and grew and grew to the horror of everyone at the Bodleian I think until it was about to their delight <laughs> until it was about 140,000 words and we, we cut it down a bit but um, yeah Renard has so many facets the story and the character uh, that it, it you know it expanded into its into its space. There, there's so there are more than one manuscript, I think, or more than one copy of the, in the Bodleian. Is that right? Or yes, you... yes. There, there are quite a few. There's a an early one of Caxton without any illustration, um, which I looked at. But there's one, and there there are a couple more. But the one I really absolutely adored was one from um, I think 1620 that was in the uh, the collection of Robert. Burton, who wrote The Anatomy of Melancholy, of course, um, and it's got his thin sort of ghost-like initials on the first page, RB, and you can see little marks at some of the funny bits in the, in the, in the volume, so I like to think of him reading it and, and perhaps chuckling to himself when he was having a, a bad day, when he was sort of overwhelmed by the black dog reading uh, his copy of Reynard and, uh, and cheering himself up a bit. Yes, marvellous. Um, you've actually this this idea that it's so many pages is because you've actually expanded it. Yeah, I would say you've caught your metaphors are that you've furred and feathered and enfleshed yeah. the original. That's um, right. And um, and what so t tell us a little bit about that process. It's very so, enjoyable for the reader, by the way. Yes. Yeah, so I I I had a copy of Paxton, and as I was trans I translated I sort of went but went through it very slowly. So I, I looked at the actual the language and the, the text and the story, and I, I, I tried to translate that, but then I, I embroidered it. So, for example, um, Bruin the Bear is sent off to go and retrieve Reynard from his castle and bring him back to court. And in Caxton, it's about a paragraph. His entire journey is, is less than a paragraph. It's the Bruin leaves the court. He goes up a hill. It's a bit of a slog. He gets to Reynard's castle. And I expanded that into a whole journey where Bruin is, is eating continuously and uh, getting into terrible trouble in this rather gentle Flemish landscape. You know, he sort of gets stuck in puddles and he, he's absolutely terrified of Reynard's castle and he sees um, sort of horrors where there really aren't any. And so it, it expands very much there so there's that kind of basic expansion of just writing a bit writing more about something that's already there and then i also put in bits that hadn't just simply hadn't been there before including a, a couple of characters actually so there's a there's one character which is um Bruin's great uncle and um <laughs> i put him in and he sort of crops up a bit like king charles's head all over the place you know people are suddenly talking about Bruin's uncle as being um this expert in Ovid or you know or he, he wanted to be playing the loop that kind of thing so that that was quite amusing to do 
Would you like to read a passage so we get a sense of sense of it? Oh yeah, yeah. So this bit, this part is from um, this is a uh, Grimbart the Badger, who's Renard's best friend, has just um, just managed to get persuade him to come to court finally. I and mean, Renard knows he really can't hang around in his castle anymore. He's got to go and face the music, and they've just spent a long night walking across uh, Flanders from. Um, from Rupelmond to, to Ghent, and this is when they're entering the city of Ghent together. Renard's a bit nervous because he knows he's in, in terrible danger, really. Reynard and Grimbart crossed the river layer by the Budinsbus. It was the day of the dairy market and the streets were packed. Everyone stopped and stared at the fox whose actioned reputation had spread far and wide. Some of his old audacity and hardiest had returned by this point, however, with the visceral thrill of entering the heaving, stinking, noisy, glorious city, his cape swirling around him like Robin Hood the Outlaw or Fair Lancelot. He swaggered and sauntered through the streets, dagger flashing, brush waving high, winking at the ladies and exchanging sparkling conceits with the sober burghers of Ghent. By the time the pair had reached the moat, Reynard's charm had thoroughly bewitched the crowd, who had begun to whisper that those snobby grandlings up at the castle had got it all wrong. How could such a witty and unpretentious fox be a murderer or a thief? By contrast, when it was first known in the court that Reynard had finally been brought to justice by his old friend Grimbart, there was none so poor no, nor so lacking in kin or friends that they didn't ready themselves to make an accusation against the fox. The cues were growing even longer than those at Whitson's naking out of the main hall and into the courtyard. I know that you actually travelled. Thank you, that was wonderful to hear. <laughs> and I know that you travelled quite a bit. I mean, here one felt the local colour in that passage you just read, and the, your book is full of marvellous evocations of landscape. Yes, I, well, I felt it was very important to go to Flanders and to actually see all the old sites that were associated with Reynard or with, with his authors, his early Flemish authors. So I stayed in Ghent, I based myself in Ghent and uh, have a friend in Hulst who, who works um, on tourism in the area actually and Renard is a huge part of their sort of quite modest but you know significant tourist industry. So he pointed me in a few directions and uh, I made quite a comprehensive map of all the different sites and visited them, them all and uh, you know got a sense of how, how long it would actually take to walk from Ghent. Rupelmond, you know, it's about 30 miles or so. Um, and how you know how it felt in in Rupelmond, which is where I based Reynard's castle, you know, what it felt like to be by the river Shelder and and how far you felt Antwerp to be or Brussels to be, and all these things that you cannot get unless you actually visit somewhere and you're actually there walking around in the landscape. And I also um found I also set myself the task of finding the spot where Reynard claims he buried this incredible treasure um, that he tricked King Noble with and, and it's actually described in quite a lot of detail in, in Caxton you know so you can actually I actually worked out where it was with the help of my friend from Holt so I visited this this rather lonely wood on the Dutch Belgian border and and it was exactly as it was described in, in Caxton in, in the earlier Flemish uh, monastic poems and prose and I was quite tempted to start digging <laughs> at one point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of the landscape, as you evoke it, is quite eerie, quite bleak. Mm -hmm. I mean, at times it reminded me a little bit of passages of Tolkien's 
mm. uh, Lord of the Rings, where you get the, the first world wars, devastated yeah. landscape, sort of peeping through, yeah, through the, the landscape, the imaginary landscape fantasy of his book. But um, yeah. did you feel? I mean, how how does it map onto the first world war? It seemed quite close. Yes, it is quite close. Uh, it's it's slightly further. Well, the, the Second World War is there, obviously there are huge battles on, on the River Shelf, so there is that. But but it, the First World War is further south, and and actually there's one uh, story in Reynard where uh, Reynard and Isengrim encounter a mare and her um, her foal, and Reynard and uh, Isengrim into getting you know hit in the face by the mare. And this takes place in a wood, which is just um, just northeast of Ypres, in in Ypres salient, um, salient, and um, right in the centre of where First World War battles took place. And uh, that again, you can pinpoint almost the exact wood where the Renard story takes place. And it's actually, I think there was the, the front line in maybe October 1917 ran directly where the story takes place and in this wood there's now you know there's memorials to the first world war but there's also a statue of reynard so these two sort of interlink link and interlock and there's sort of there's a kind of ghostly conversation almost going on between the two so both you know the historical events and the story are so you know rooted in the same landscape that they, that they do they do cross each other in a very interesting and moving way, I think. Is that statue 19th century or? A 20th century, I think. 20th yeah. century. And do you think that he, in a way, embodies something of the current spirit of that part of the world? I mean, is he oh, yeah. a sort of totem animal in some way? Absolutely. So Reynard is, is from eastern Flanders, uh, a place called the Wastland. Which is difficult to translate, but it, it sort of has a sense of of, of marshiness, bog, um, a bit like Tolkien's sort of mar dead marshes, almost that slightly that feel of obscurity and and mist, and and the the Waslanders e even today are very very proud of Reynard. They feel that he's a sort of anarchic uh, of the people who who fight for fight for the small and overlooked. And that disempowered and stands up to authority and stands up to sort of um you know uh the kind of big guys of Brussels or, or Ghent. And uh, you know, there's there have been nationalistic tendencies, you know, with Reynard, but basically he he he's he's one of the most loved figures in that area and, and there's statues to him everywhere. Every little village has a has a, a statue of Reynard or Bruin or um uh, is in Grimm and um, in, in St. Nicholas, which is the main town of the Waffland, they have a, the master bakers of St. Nicholas have a special cake dedicated to Reynard, which I ate in, in, in the, <laughs> you know, <laughs> for research. There's a lot of wonderful food, it's food in your book. There's yeah. delicious recipes. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, you, I, I think food important really to add, well it's it, uh, on several levels i mean food is important in rooting the book in medieval in the medieval context and in the flemish context but also there's this huge subtext running through about 
animals basically their main motive in life is food mm. and this is what ha really reynard's every murder is is really because he's eating you know he's eating his chickens or his geese and and um there's the whole parable of the man the young man and the serpent which is about you know whether or not the serpent has the right to bite the young man because he's hungry and how important his food as a driving factor as a mitigating factor in in people's um conduct in animals conduct so that was that was an important part of it but i also felt that food was was there to show the richness of medieval culture yeah and also yeah. it's spread i mean there's a lot of sort of oriental spices and Mm, oh yes yes that's right yes in 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 renard's kitchen for example which i i wanted to describe because i wanted to expand on 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 malperdwick his 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 castle because often it's just depicted as a bit you know a couple of rooms or or, or a hole in the ground almost but i wanted to build this into something a bit more into this rather wonderful place that was rather shabby and makeshift and a bit falling down but it was a it was a home his home and uh, yes, the, the, there's a spice room in his kitchen, sort of just off his kitchen described. And I wanted to, yeah, all the way through, in fact, I, I wanted to sort of link this, this Flemish courtly culture to a much wider world. Mm. Uh, Renard's wife, Emmeline, for example, who I've turned into a philologist and, and a tra translator, she's continuously translating Arabic texts. <laughs> Um, and and Reynard, when he's talking about his father, who he says was a, was actually a, a trained physician who trained in Montpellier, um, Reynard talks about how he was an expert in Arabic medicine. You know, so there's this, you know, there's this like constant reminder that that you know the Arabic world, the much wider world, enters in and out, and this is a much bigger culture than we perhaps. Thank you. Thank you. you mentioned Hermeline, who is Reynard's wife. Yeah. You introduced or expanded some wonderful female characters. I yeah. felt I felt you'd you'd remedied uh, a tendency in, mm. in such materials towards misogyny, but you you had somehow you had, you'd redressed this balance with some wonderful. Well, tell us a little bit about some. Yeah. Well, um, there was the Queen, the, the, the Queen Ghent. We were talking about the pronunciation, and I'm not entirely sure. I think it's Ghent, Gente, or it could be Jean, as, as you suggested. Um, but she, she has more of a backstory. She's, she's, uh, in, she's not even named, I think, in Captain. I, I found her name in, in some other texts. And uh, I give her a, a great interest in fishing. So she's always going off and wanting to just spend her days fishing in the in the river Lee or or Shelda. and uh, she also has a uh, a backstory of coming from Toulouse, coming from the south of France, and having a couple of brothers. And there's it's just expanding these these female lives so that they they're much richer and much more um, profound, really. Um, Emmeline, as as we said, she. she she features as a as a sort of pragmatic figure in Captain. She's worrying about stores and how much food they've got to last and sighing at Reynard. <laughs> Reynard in those. But I wanted to make her into her own um her own fo a fox in her own right, who's also interested in language and uh, as much as Reynard is, but in a different way. So Reynard's fascinated by language, he uses language to wriggle out of things, but Ermeline is fascinated by translating language. 
So I sort of turned her into a sort of, you know, symbol of what I was doing in many ways, trying to translate from Caxton's 1481 the work, which in itself was a translation of an earlier Flemish prose, which was a translation of a Flemish poem. And it goes back and back and back to Aesop with, with all these different interpretations. So Ermeline thinks a lot about how to translate. She, she, there's a little bit in it about the translation process, about, you know, the jump from language to language or jumping over this chasm. And how do you bridge this chasm? And uh, do, you need to, do you need to smooth it over so there's no, you can't see a gap? Or is it okay to jump from one language to another and, and change aspects of, of, of meaning or um, expand a story as I've done? Um, <laughs> The language uh, is extraordinarily rich, and you've decided to, I think, follow the theories of translation which believe in keeping the strangeness to some extent. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And I, I wanted to keep a lot of the Anglo-Dutch words. Uh, I thought that was, that was important. Uh, as Caxton, it wasn't laziness or anything. He, he had lived so long in the low countries that he, was, he wasn't. I think he was more, you know, Flemish, really, in a sense, than he was English. And he was from Kent. So he, he often said that, you know, people, some people in, you know, Lincolnshire or somewhere couldn't understand what people said in Kent because it was so, the accent and the, the language was so different. Anyway, so Caxton kept in a lot of Dutch words um, in a very interesting way. Uh, later on, William, when William Morris published his version of Reynard, he, he had a, a glossary at the end which said something like, these are Jackson's very strange words. Um, and so I wanted to keep those. And then I wanted to use my own made-up words. And I use, wanted to, you know, use um, medieval words that maybe fallen out of favor, you know, re-instate um, them. Do, uh, do you, you've got a very fascinating glossary. Yes. Got, and they're a wonderful mixture. I mean... So Albuspine is the name for common hawthorn. I'm just looking at the very beginning of it. Yeah. Then you have um, Bar de Creel hens, an old Belgian breed of bearded bantam hen <laughs> chicken, first bred in the village of Uffle. So, um, so yeah. it's a very wide span of a sort of glossary that ranges from old and antique and archaic to newfangled and I yeah, think you had a lot of fun doing this. I had a lot of fun, and I—it's I, called Lady Hermeline's glossary. So that sort of again is emphasising her as being my kind of uh, my character in the in the book, if you like. And I, I like the idea of the, the glossary being almost like a, a cabinet of curiosities, really a linguistic cabinet of curiosities, and also as representing something that meant that anyone could read the book. So if you're looking through it and you you come to a word and you think, what on earth does that mean? You look in the back and there it is, you know. It's easy to, to read in that sense. Every possible uh, problem in, in understanding the text, you've got it in the back from food, what on earth is that, you know, dish to, to something like the, the hen. So it's a sort of an accessibility um, uh, segment as well. It's made it accessible as well. I think it's wonderful. And, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about how children don't know the, na the word for primrose anymore or the word yeah. willow herb. Yeah. Exactly. They didn't have contact with wildflowers in the situation they're in. Yeah. It's probably exacerbated now, very seriously. So yeah. uh, this is a way, I think, it's a, it's a wonderful way of 
expanding the pleasures of noticing the world. Yeah, exactly. And also by putting in uh, words that I'd made up. So sometimes, you know, if there was uh, something happening in the, in the narrative, I don't know, maybe a character was feeling fear, I might put in my own made-up or words or, or onomatopoeic words to, to convey that fear. And that also meant that it, it was almost like the animals had their own language in a very sort of subtle way. Um, and this sense of them being separate from the human world, of inhabiting their own space, was conveyed, I hope, through their language. And I also put a note in that you can just read it and not bother too much about what it means. It should, you should get the sense of it. Or I think I put something like, you know, when you're sitting in a foreign country and you, you know quite a lot of the language, you're sitting in a cafe and you can sort of pretty much understand what someone's saying next to you in a conversation, but you, you not quite that sort of feeling. You let it wash over you and you get that sense. It's a poetic effect too. Mm. The, you said you mentioned alliteration. I think. Yeah. You use repetition, you use quite a lot of, mm. um, I mean, I think it's a form of poetic prose, yeah. narrative, comic narrative of um, poetic prose. Yeah, and lots of repetition, which Reynard likes to use as well, to, to sort of drag his audience in, his kind of foxish rhetoric. That would lead wonderfully to your second reading. Do, do read that passage. Okay. Yeah. So, yes. But, um, yeah. So Reynard is um is the middle of the night somewhere off the main road to Antwerp and Reynard they, they they've actually erected uh, a pair of gallows for Reynard and he's really just this is his last chance to wriggle out of actually being hung um and it, it's about the moment when he suddenly sees how he can get out of it how he can speak out King Noble the lion sat down heavily on the hanging platform adjusting his crown which was slipping on his wet mane and commanded each of them to be still and let Sir Reynard the fox tell his story without interruption or fear. Still trembling slightly, Reynard felt his fur stand on end in a frisson of excitement. The thrill that came not during his many last-minute escapes, his frenzied spinning of stories or squeezing through tunnels and trapdoors, but in the fragmentary moments just before, in the edge time of his escapades, when a sudden internal vision of the right path to follow was perfectly revealed to him, the mass untangling and fast weaving of his various deceitful possibilities, until they formed a perfectly woven tapestry, a bright cartographic landscape of falsehood and trickery laid before him. Then, said Reynard, stepping from the edge to the centre of his story once more, feeling his luck changing, the old rota fortuna cranking around once more, be you now or still, since it is the king's will, and I shall openly tell you the treason, and I will spare no one whom I know to be guilty, though my heart be ripped out in the telling. Marvellous. Um, well, I think one could hear in that passage how the animals are being used, dramatised, yeah. in this whole tradition to represent very present reality. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and I wondered what, what, how do you feel, you feel this... I mean, in a sense, it's slightly fallen out of fashion or favour in the last hundred years, I'd say. But do you think it's coming back, this, this, this fabulism, this idea of writing with these symbolic tropes and very entertaining allegorical yeah. methods? I think so. I think, I think Reynard 
in particular, it has always been used, has always been used to represent um, the, the people rising up against their, their oppressors or the, 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 the disempowered against the empowered. Um, he's always been popular during periods of war or just after war when people are absolutely exhausted with the machinations of power. So um, Paxton's version is 1481, so that's sort of the, the Wars of the Roses, everyone, you know, kings shifting and changing and all the complexities of um, bloodlines. And uh, so, that, you know, it's all the way through the end, you know, the end of the 15th century and the, and the 16th century that he's a bestseller. And then um, in the 1790s, Goethe, who's in the middle of a, a French Revolutionary Wars in a, in a really awful battle that is going nowhere. He, he, he's in his tent and there's cannon firing everywhere and he picks up a copy of Reynolds and starts reading it and starts roaring with laughter and thinking to himself, my God, this box is, is absolutely modern. He represents everything that's going on now, this story. You know, Renard is um, uh, is a, is a fox for you know the Enlightenment. So uh, and then, so he goes and translates Renard himself. Um, and then again, um, you know, now he's coming out as a as a narrative um, that is of relevance to people. I mean, people have read this and and they they can uh, they said to me, you know, God, so and so. And it reminds me of Trump or <laughs> is this to do with Brexit? You know, you're talking about Brexit here and, and I'm I am i am not actually, but but it you know, it's so um archetypal and the, the problems in it, the idea of lying and and which narrative is the true narrative and fake news and and um all those terrible thorny issues of today, nationalism, you know, everything is is in that text. Yes, he's, he's, he speaks, doesn't he, for what we feel as ourselves. I mean, we don't identify so much with King Noble. No. <laughs> or, or Isengrim. Um, no. But um, at the same time, he is a rascal, isn't he? I mean, he's, un he's absolutely unscrupulous. Un he's a terrible. totally mendacious. So what, uh, can you, I mean, can you think a little, a little bit for us about the appeal of this and the disjunction, the kind of way it doesn't, Quite fit. I mean, I can see King Noble and Bruin as the villains of some, you know, despotic regime. Yeah. Um, very, very, very releasing to to laugh, to be able to laugh. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, why do I like Reynard so much <laughs> when I don't like devious, unscrupulous politicians? Yes. Well, I think um, I think one of the aspects of Reynard, a Victorian academic, uh, uh, spoke about this. I, I quote in my um, introduction that there's absolutely no humbug about him. He is absolutely, he is as he is. You know, all the other animals have these terrible sins and um, uh, problems. Uh, you know, there's a guy, uh, but the cat is incredibly arrogant, has this intellectual arrogance. Bruin the bear is very greedy and vain and King Noble is a, is a terrible narcissist who's <laughs> really uninterested in governing his people. He's much more interested in them, you know, glorifying him. And uh, But Reynard is a fox and he acts according to his own fox 
nature. Um, he eats chickens, he eats geese, you know, he loves his wife, he loves his cubs. He's very proud of his cubs learning to sort of steal chickens and that sort of thing. So I think, I think that basic yeah, non-humbug aspect of Reynard makes us, us like him. Um, and then his, his lies are, are just so over the top as well that they, they're, they're, they're very funny because it really becomes, it becomes the other characters that, that are complete idiot, idiots for believing him, I think. And you, you, start to, you start to just see their flaws rather than Reynard, perhaps. Um, you're going to have an exhibition. In fact, you, you've told us that this began, this whole project began right. with the possibility of an exhibition. I think it's happening next year, is that right? That's right. Um, it was going to be this year, um, but obviously with, with COVID, it's now next year, next December. And uh, this ex exhibition is called North Sea Crossings, and it will look at uh, Anglo-Dutch literary exchange during medieval period. Um, and that includes Reynard. Um, looking at how Reynard, the text of Reynard came over to England and then was, was, became so popular and also looking at um, other texts, other movements of, of people, uh, thought, ideas. Um, and uh, so there'll be a huge um, section of Reynard manuscripts dating from, uh, the uh, I think, the 12th century onwards. And also in the exhibition, we have the first a secular uh, piece of, of written of, of Dutch, which is a very famous um, uh, manuscript, a uh, flyleaf in a manuscript, which is uh, from the, written by a monk in Rochester in the 11th century, which is very famous in, in, in Holland, but not really very well known here. So there'll be real treasures that people haven't, haven't seen before. And are you bringing it up to date? Because um... Reynard has a long project, many cubs, much progeny. Yeah. Um, uh, in terms of the, um, well, in, in terms of films, I don't know if I spoke to you about this before, but uh, we've been working with Aardman animations as well uh, in this project. And we've been doing, uh, working on doing some uh, cartoons, some uh, stop uh, motion animation um, based on the book with some schools and undergraduates in Bristol. So this will be some more modern uh, update animation based on, uh, I think we're going to do the battle scene at the end of the book where Renard and Isengrim come to blows. And also I think Bruin the Bear, the, scene, the scenes with Bruin the Bear, um, and those will be filmed in Bristol. And we've had quite a few sessions at Ardman learning about animation and how to adapt uh, Reynard, so that would be very interesting, and th those films will be in the exhibition as well. Marvelous. And what about the, the figures like Mr. Todd, Beatrix Potter? Oh yes, yes. So Reynard, he he comes, uh, he he sort of gets less popular in the sort of after Goethe. Anyway, he becomes popular in Goethe's version in the in the Victorian period, and then he becomes less popular as we go into the twentieth century. And becomes just a sort of name that people know, but they don't really know the stories very well. And he gets submerged into this trickster archetype. So Mr. Todd in Beatrice Potter has elements of, of Reynard. And then you have um, uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, of course, with Roald Dowell and um, 
and also the Disney um, cartoon uh, Robin Hood, that was based on Reynard's stories. And Disney originally had it in his head that he absolutely wanted to have a Reynard animation. And this was in the 40s and the 50s. And they kept working on it, but they couldn't quite get it right. And in the end, Disney said, we can't do it because we're never going to get Reynard past the Hayes Code. He's just too anarchic. They couldn't make him um, <laughs> good enough to sit <laughs> past. Too naughty and too um, wild. So subversive, too subversive. It, yeah, too subversive. And they turned him into. They turned. They reused the uh, illustrations um, as uh, Robin Hood. So that's why the Disney Robin Hood has a lion as um, you know the um, baddie and has the uh, Robin Hood. Uh, Robin Hood the fox and the the sheriff of Nottingham the wolf. They're actually secretly Reynard characters underneath. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it's a very vivacious animation, actually, the Robin Hood of Disney. I mean, I was, yeah. I was surprised by the by the quality of it and compared to some rather saccharine stuff that Disney was putting out around that time. Yes, exactly. And you can see the Renardian qualities of uh, the charm and the, the wit coming through in, in Robin Hood, I think. Now, you, you, you have a un very interesting background, very unusual background, yeah. to, to have entered into Anglo-Dutch. And animal fables and this wonderful work of revisioning um, Reynard. Mm. So perhaps you could tell us because you originally studied Japanese. That's right, and I, I worked in uh, the field of Japanese prints for quite a long time. Um, and I, I was saying to you the other day about um, yes, translating Japanese when I was younger had a lot of the same problems and, and challenges and joys of translating Reynard. So. I, I had already thought of quite a lot about ideas of translation and how to um, how a translation can't just be, you know, doing it word by word, sentence by sentence. It has to be a lot, a lot more than that to make uh, a story come alive and to convey the meaning. Really, I think um, you told me that you you had to translate something which had lederhosen in it. Oh yes, <laughs> yes. I remember at university I had to translate um. Uh, a, a short story about Lederhosen, and it was then that I realised how that how much work translate good translators actually actually do in order to um to bring bring a tale uh, across across to one language to another. It's a, it's a huge undertaking, and it requires a, a creativity and, a, and an art of it, very much of its own. I think, and it's interesting, of course with Reynard because you're translating English into English so again that's that's quite challenging so you're actually translating you know translating from middle English into modern English when it's the same language so you're sort of bringing something from the roots of a tree upwards if you like that's that's a very interesting uh, uh thing to do were you able to look at the original that Caxton had had translated and see how close he'd been, because it, ideas about translation keep mm. keep shifting, keep changing. And um, I mean, in some ways, I remember being very struck, for example, that Racine in his prefaces to his plays talks about how he's looked at the Euro Euripides' manuscripts. He was the first person actually to do so, to actually try and, and, and read them and edit them properly. And, um, and he sees his own Iphigenia as a sort of version of, 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 of um, Euripides. 
And that's extraordinary because we would never see it like that now. It's a totally original work in our view. Yeah. So, how, how much did Paxton depart from Wilhelm's version that he was working from? Um, yes, it's, it's, it's quite close, really. Um, there's a kind of, there's a different atmosphere to Paxton. There's a kind of uh, orality, a kind of verve. That I, I always imagine Caxton sitting down. I know everyone, we know he wrote it quite quickly, translated it quite quickly. And I imagine him dashing it off and then reading it aloud when he's finished the section. And there's, there's very much a sense that um, he's getting it down in order for people to read out loud. I mean, they're, 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 the original, it, it's quite close. And I had a copy, I had a copy which had the middle duck and an English translation side by side. But that that only went to a certain to a certain level of uh, sort of um, stage in Caxton, and then Caxton elaborates. So um, yes, there, there's one one aspect I really wanted to put back in, which is slightly more present in the earlier version, was the sense of the Flemish landscape, was the sense of it being very rooted in Flanders as well. Um, I, I I put some bits in that were based on the on the Middle Dutch, which and didn't happen as well so it's a melange of, of 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 a number of different sources and there's a little bit of the french uh the french branch as well because it, it went traveled all over europe there's even an italian version um and of course it fed into things like Brer rabbit as well mm. i mean i associate the characters and certainly the fox with misericord um mm. yeah so Yes. And marginalia in manuscripts. I don't know if that's going to be, if any of that kind of material might be in the exhibition. Yes, yes, we have a lot of that. We have a lot of um, marginalia in particular, which is very interesting. Um, there's, a, there's a very funny one of um, we're having in the exhibition with Reynard pretending to be dead and being carried on a very elaborate funeral um, beer, you know, and that uh, he's just about to slip out of the bottom of it and sneak off. <laughs> completely alive of course um so yes there's a lot of that and 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 of course reynard people have written about um there's been a number of works about how reynard was in england before caxton i mean he cropped up a little bit in text but there's so many depictions of foxes in in churches in stained glass in misericords all over the place that you, there's a very good argument for reynard being told as a story a long time before 1481. You think there's a lot in, isn't it the source of sour grapes? Yes, that's right. <laughs> this fox looking up at the grapes and can't reach them and says, well, they're probably sour anyway. Yeah, that's it. An ingenious explanation yeah. of his translation. And of course, there's lots of, uh, Renaud is based way back in Aesop, so there are lots of very funny Aesop tales that are. Uh, that's a very Renardian. I think this has prompted you to become a storyteller yourself. That's right. Yes. Well, when I was um, when I was writing Reynard, I had quite an austere. It was quite an austere sort of um, methodology I used. I, I sort of wrote. I went to the Bodleian every morning. I, I wrote for hours. I, I ended up reading Proust at lunchtime because Proust was just the perfect foil for some reason to <laughs> doing the <laughs> translation because. It was, you know, and he also made me feel that I could just ramble on a bit as well. So if I wanted to talk about a, a river for two pages, I, I, that was fine. 
So I liked reading truth, but then I also started writing these modern fox stories on, on Twitter, actually. These little tiny tales about a modern fox living quite near Bournemouth with a collection of other animals and going through the same things that we've all been going through, the, the mm. you know, COVID, um, Brexit, the fears and worries of, of everyday life. And um, so I created this series of characters that were almost like a, an echo of Reynard and his um, medieval uh, sort of band. And actually, at one point when the book came out, I made the, the main character an old fox. Uh, talk about receiving a pile of books from the Bodleian and how, how wonderful it was to read about his ancestors. So there was a lot of strange textuality in my in my <laughs> your Twitter, your Twitter fables. Yeah, wonderful. Does your fox have a name? Old fox. All the all the animals that are just called by their name, which I found was quite powerful. So there's a pine martin who's simply called Pine Martin, and uh, he has a grandmother who uh, I, I made the pine martin in these stories Polish because I wanted to examine ideas of xenophobia and, and um, <laughs> you know, living in England as a Polish person, but he's a Polish pine martin and his, his grandmother is um, Bab Babka, so in, it's called, you know, Polish for grandmother. But there's, they don't have any more specifics for their names, so they can become kind of archetypes rather than, you know, down character. Wonderful. Well, I think I should say that um, we you, the book is available in the uh, Bodleian shop, which you can't probably go to or not go in many numbers to at the moment, but it is online, bodleianshop.co.uk, and members of the Friends of the Bodleian get 10% off. And, um, and please join the Friends of the Bodleian, buy the book on the website, or in the shop, and goodbye. Goodbye.